Well, it's my intention tonight and in the following few evenings to to go through each of these um, Ten Commandments. I hadn't intended to to do that. There's something I decided um, recently, because I don't want to do what I did in Genesis and be, be here for months. But I was just so impressed through studying, again, these commandments of, how, of their practical use to us. And I don't, while we're here, while we're traveling this way, as it were, through the Bible, I think it's worth just going a little more slowly just to take that opportunity to, um, to glean the teaching that God gives us here. So tonight we will be concentrating on the first commandment, which is Exodus 20, verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I just want to very quickly <clears throat> recap where we, how we've got to this point. Um, last time we looked at the introduction to the to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments, verses 1 and 2. God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And we focused on those two verses last time. And um, we emphasised the point that these ten words, the, these, these ten commandments are addressed to those who had already been brought into liberty. They'd already been delivered from Egypt. And understanding the Ten Commandments <clears throat> and in understanding the Mosaic Law requires us to be clear on the context in which they were first given. Some people believe, you see, that God gave these laws to Israel as a means by which they could earn their salvation. There are two versions of this in the church. One comes from the reformed world, oddly. Um, this, is called the, <clears throat> this is called the republication of the covenant of works. We, we spoke of the covenant of works, that test that God set in the Garden of Eden, um, which man failed. And some reformed theologians say that that covenant of works works was republished in the mosaic covenant and that man once again or not man but israel once again was given the opportunity to earn salvation through law keeping the other version of this what i would say is an error comes outside of the reformed tradition on the whole uh, which is an extreme <clears throat> at the extreme end of dispensationalism. I, I emphasize extreme end because we mustn't misrepresent people. Not all dispensationalists say this. But in an extreme form of dispensationalism, they say that the, the law was given as a way for Israel to be saved through law keeping. But we saw last time that the timing of these statutes when these statutes were received, makes this impossible. Because typologically speaking, the giving of the law was given to an already redeemed and saved people. These people had been already delivered from Egypt. And so the Exodus was viewed as the Old Testament redemption. And although it was typical, a type of a greater redemption in Christ, it was still an actual redemption and deliverance from a real oppressive power and enemy, Egypt. And this fact, this order of things, led us to um, emphasise, as, as John Calvin does in, in, his, in his writings, that the normal or the normative use of the law for the church. And I emphasize for the church is to reveal what is pleasing to God. It's not a, not a way, it's not a method in which we obtain salvation. It's all, it is God revealing to those who he has already redeemed 
what pleases him and what displeases him. And through the law, we learn what pleases God and what offends God. And therefore, I argued last time that grace that saves, the grace that saves precedes the law that demands. And that's important to understand. The law was not given so that the people could become redeemed. Rather, they were given the law because they had already been redeemed. And in this <clears throat> normative first use of the law, um, I emphasised that this law was given to a free people to show them how they should live to God, having been delivered, having been redeemed. In previous studies, we looked at the two other functions of the law, because that's not the only function of the law. Um, there are other ways that law functions in the Bible, and we spent a long time talking about that. There's the pedagogical use, where the law is a mirror which illuminates human sinfulness, and it acts as a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ because it shows the impossibility of keeping the law as a means of salvation. And then there is the civil use of the law. I haven't spoken a lot about that. But there is the civil use of the law, which is for the restraint of evil. So that although the law cannot change a human heart, it cannot save a human heart, it can enable a limited measure of justice on earth until the final day of judgment. John Calvin in his Institute speaks of how the law of God can protect the righteous from the unjust. In his words, I quote, using its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who unless forced have no regard for rectitude and justice. And this, of course, comes, theologically speaking, comes under the heading of common grace. The main purpose of common grace being um, to retain <clears throat> sufficient order upon the earth to enable the gospel to be preached until Christ shall come. If there's total chaos, how do we how do how do we even have services? How do we even hold open air meetings and so on? So those are the functions of the law. But I argued <clears throat> last time, and I believe this to be true, that the the initial in, in the context of Exodus 20, the first purpose and use of the law was to show an. I know we're only talking about typology here, but we're talking about typologically a saved nation, a, 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 a Israel who had been redeemed. And so the first purpose of the law um, was to show Israel how they should, should now live. Having been made free, how do you live as a free man or a free woman in God's salvation? Um, anachronistically, looking back on something, putting something back in time, it, we're talking about Calvin's third use of the law. Um, and in this use of the law, grace leads to law because a saved heart expresses gratitude. How does, it, how does a, a, a saved heart show gratitude? Through obedience. It's all, it's all just words otherwise. If we don't actually obey God, then it's all just fluff. We show we love God by obeying him. And so this is the normative use of the law. Law does not lead to grace because we are saved by grace, not by works. Um... Now we know that not all of Israel would have been saved personally speaking, um, but they were all part of the covenant community. And in fact, it's not really any different than today. 
Um, the elect of God in the Old and the New Covenants have always been mixed in or alongside those who are externally part of the church but internally are still unregenerate. The Lord Jesus spoke of, he spoke in parables about that, the wheat and the tares and the goats and the sheep were all mixed in. All we can do as, as church leaders or church officers is to, uh, we, we expect a, a reasonable, credible profession of faith and a person is admitted to the, to the table or to the church. But they may be deceiving us. It's only the Lord that really knows. I mean, there has to be a, somebody comes in swearing and smoking and all the rest of it, then we, we wouldn't see it as an incredible profession. But we can be deceived. Um, so the church is a, is, has always been, even in the Old Testament, a mixed, a mixture of... Um, of regenerate and unregenerate people. Um, but in the Old Testament, the elect people of God were saved by faith in exactly the same way as we are, fundamentally the same way, just a different direction. They, they were looking forward through the type. I mean, it's, it's debatable. People disagree about it to, what, to the extent of their understanding. I personally don't think that they needed to, to understand that much. They put their faith in the fact that this ceremony, this ritual, was God saying, if you do this, you'll be forgiven of your sins. And they placed their faith in the mercy of God. Uh, some people say, well, no, they, 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 they would have known more about um, what would happen later in the new covenant. I'm not so sure about that, but the point is they were saved through faith in God's mercy. And although the ceremony, the blood sacrifice, the, the blood of the animal had no value, but what it, what it typified and foreshadowed had value. And so it had saving effect through the type. And we, of course look back upon a finished cross, an empty cross. All, both of us, one church, one people of God, saved by faith. The other main point to bear in mind from last time was the, the reminder that I gave that <clears throat> what, what is new here in Exodus 20 what is new, because this is really the point of this series, is to see how Revelation progresses, or it's almost like a better word might be the cumulative effect of Revelation. Because nothing, when, when I say progress, progressive Revelation, I don't mean, you know, everything starts from scratch again every time there's a new covenant or a new epoch of Revelation. It's all built, it builds and adds on to what's already been revealed. So what's new when we come to Exodus 20 here is not the moral law. Because the, the law of God does not begin in Exodus 20. The moral law of God began from the beginning of time. As soon as man and woman were created. So none, none of this is new. All these things God expected from the beginning. But what is new and what adds to the progression of revelation and end of salvation here um, was the codification of the law, the fact that it was written down on these tablets, these two tablets. Um, and of course this was done in the context of God making a covenant with Israel, the Mosaic Covenant. Biblical research has discovered that the, the Hittite people, which were a neighbouring Canaanite people, and the covenants made by the Hittite kings and their vassals only came into effect when they had been when these covenants had been exchanged in written form. 
And there always had to be two identical copies made, one of which, which was retained by the Hittite king and the other by the vassal. And it's very interesting that here in, in Exodus 20, we have two copies made of this covenant document, the law. Um, we know that Israel kept both tablets produced on Sinai together in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, there's no reason to think that God, you know, God condescends to our understandings. There's no reason to, 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 to think that there's anything um, unusual in God uh, speaking and acting in a way that would have made sense to the people and the culture of that time. It shows that the Lord was the covenant-making and the covenant-guarding king, resident among his people, and he sets his law before them as the way in which that they can enjoy all the benefits of the covenant. And then um, last time we discussed the implications of our relationship to the law from the fact that we are now in the new covenant we're not in the mosaic covenant of course we're in the covenant made by the lord jesus around that, that last supper table that's when he instituted the new covenant and we're part of that covenant and we spoke about the significance of the sermon on the mount and there's a big debate in theology is very live in fact at the moment about the degree of um continuity between the old the ten commandments under moses and the law as given by jesus in the sermon on the mount you know, was jesus jesus creating new law because he did say moses said but i say unto you was he creating new law or was he just bringing out a, a great was he just amplifying um greater light from the law that was already there in the Ten Commandments. There's a debate about that. Um, and I'd like to go into all those issues, but I won't because we would lose a lot of time. But I'll just tell you what my view is, if you like. My view is, is that I, <clears throat> I stick with the Westminster Confession of Faith which emphasize, emphasizes the continuity between the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, I think Christ was highlighting the truth that was already in the law rather than adding new law. Um, that rather fits in with our series anyway, or our philosophy of the Bible that what is in what is in the New Testament reveals what was concealed often in the Old Testament. The thing is, once you read the New Testament and see that which was concealed revealed, when you go back to the concealed, it doesn't seem so concealed anymore. But in fact, and I think this is what's happening here, is that the Lord Jesus is is revealing what is concealed and latent and, and there in the law anyway. I don't think he was adding. And we know he wasn't subtracting because he said not one jot or tittle will be taken from this law. Again, that's my opinion. Um, there, there are different views on, on that. So those were roughly speaking the, the introductory points made already. So we now come to the Ten Commandments themselves. The Ten Commandments have many names. The Jews call them the Ten Words, or in Greek, the Decalogue. They are also called in the Bible, the Law. Um, other times it's called the Law and the Covenant. In other places it's called the Tables of Testimony. And in other places it's called the Law of Testimony, but it's all the same thing. Um, different church traditions have organized the Ten Commandments in different ways. The, the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans 
treat Exodus 20 verses 3 to 6 as one commandment and then they divide the tenth and then some traditions put the seventh commandment before the sixth commandment um, we don't need to get into all of that and then we think of the actual two tables they, they were written on two tables stone tables of the law um, some people say there were these two tablets and on one tablet there were the four com were four commandments those which relate to God and the worship of God and then on the second tablet there were the remaining six commandments which relate more to man's social duty to neighbor and to family and so on um, nearly all modern conservative scholars today believe that all the commandments were written in full on both tablets um, because that's how covenants were made um, the book of Deuteronomy for example is set out in almost precisely the, the same logic and order as a, as a covenant treaty those covenant treaties which, which have been found and can be read it follows the same pattern there's no reason why God God condescends often to, to our, the, in his revelation to the way people thought and acted in the culture of the time um, I'm not going to argue about the division of the camp commandments just to simply say that the reformed order of the Ten Commandments as individual Ten Commandments is the correct one the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans risk I think by merging some of these commandments you risk losing the emphasis of each one each one has stands alone and each one needs to be emphasized alone although of course they connect So, with all that said, we're now going to come to the first commandment. And this is all we're going to do tonight. We're going to take um, just the first commandment. <clears throat> Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So the first commandment, the first word here, begins with God and our relationship to him. I suppose we would have expected that but it's, it's significant and we need to underline it because before we as God's people can have right relationships with each other and with our neighbours our relationship with God has to be right um, the Ten Commandments didn't start with love, with love your neighbour and, and all those things Within the Decalogue, within the Ten Commandments, there is no neglect of social duty. In fact, six of the commandments out of the ten refer to social duties. But our duty to God comes first in, in order of priority. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, it, there's a tendency in, the modern, in modern evangelicalism um, to merge these two aspects of the law. In other words, that people say, my faith, um, my church is all about my social conscience. And it's all about my social action or, or the social action of my church. But this first commandment, and indeed the first four commandments, show that in thought, word and deed, the priority is that we owe God our service, we owe God our love and we owe God our obedience. The lawyer asked our Lord Jesus, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the most important? What comes first? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind this is the first and great commandment 
You see? And the second is like unto it. So he makes this division between the first and the second. He's, he's summing up the first four and he's summing up the, the six remaining but he separates them and yet in order of priority but he, he doesn't neglect either one. The second is like unto it thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So he keeps the separation, the distinction and the priority of the first four. But he also emphasises the vital connection between the first four and the remaining six. You see, in the mind and teaching of Jesus, love of God is a distinct thing. I must always come first. You see, there's, there's all sorts of language today going around in the churches. There's one about um, this rather wet, to me, rather wet sort of phrase about serving Christ in one another. So, so the way to love God is to serve Christ in one another. What it's doing there is, is confusing the law. It, it's saying, well, the way that we love God is to love God in you, to, to, to love God through social work and, and all these other things. And so there's, this is what is happening, is that this priority of, of our relationship to God in the first place is being merged with the four and the six are being, um, although they're, of course they are connected, but they are distinct too. The first commandment then, <coughs> excuse me, the first commandment then is saying in context, you are my redeemed and my covenant people and you owe, owe soul loyalty to me, your God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God demands of his people, including you and I tonight, his exclusive, our exclusive, and zealous worship. To worship any God other than Yahweh breaks the first commandment. Um, and, and of course, for Israel, to, to worship another God was an act of treachery because Yahweh, the Lord, was their king, literally their king. It was a theocracy. And this law was, was given as the covenant document. The book of the covenant, as it was called, was read to the people when they were about to swear their covenant ratifying oath in chapter 24, verse 7. And the people said these words solemnly. They, it says, And Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people. And they said all. All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. They entered into this covenant with God. And therefore this soul loyalty to this one God was required. It's put in, in, in negative terms, but the implication is positive. That you shall ex exclusively worship me. Now, of course, um, the way this is put, um, you shall have no other. You know, you shall have. You shall have no other gods. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The liberal scholars have interpreted this as saying, "Well, of course, this shows that at this stage of Israel's history, they 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 were not monotheists. They still." They weren't a people of one God because, you know, they're saying, thou shalt have no other gods before me. In other words, saying, you, sh you shall not have any, uh, you can have other gods as long as I'm number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But that's not what it is at all. Um, this commandment acknowledges the reality 
not of God's, but of the reality of the strong temptation that Israel would face to idol worship. You see, Israel was living next to people who worshipped Moloch and Baal and Asherah and Ashtoreth. And we know from later biblical history that Israel often broke this first commandment. And idolatry remained a problem in the people of God um, until God judged the northern and the southern kingdoms through Assyria and through Babylon. And after the exile, when the people of God returned gradually to the land, they had been cured of, of idolatry. There was no record at all of idol worship after the, after the return from exile. Um, it's a bit like a teenager who's caught smoking. You know, a good way of stopping them from smoking is to make them smoke the whole packet in one go. So they, so they, had, they had their full of idolatry. They were lived in a, in a society where there's nothing but idol worship and they were sick of it. And God cured them, drove it out of their out of their culture. You see, idol idolatry was so seductive to Israel, and God knew that it was going to be a snare and an, and, a, and an allure to the people of God. So, for example, Baal and Baalism. Baal was the was a supreme pagan god in, in Canaan at that time. Baal, the storm god, usually depicted holding um, a raised lightning bolt. And his consort was Asherah, the chief female deity, represented by a carved pole or, a, or sometimes by a limbless tree trunk stuck in the ground. I don't know what that was about. But they were fertility gods. Uh, and the deal with pagan, this Baal worship and other forms of paganism at the time was that the worshippers' job was to feed the gods, feed the gods with sacrifice, Molech even with the sacrifice of children, because the gods were hungry. And they needed to be fed and fed regularly. Um, but in return, man got fertility, fertility of the soil and fertility of the womb. But to get that fertility, the gods, the gods had to, um, they had to mate. I, I use a delicate language uh, term. The gods had to mate. And in order to stimulate the gods to mate, then the worshippers would mate. That's why you had these temple, uh, these shrine prostitutes. And through these, this wicked immorality, this encouraged the gods in people's minds to mate and that increased the fertility of the land and of the womb. And we see this um, ritual prostitution. And we see an incident, a famous incident of Baal Peor in Numbers 25 as, as the men began to indulge in immorality with those Moabite women. They had been, they'd been invited by these Moabite women to the sacrifices of their gods and that involved immorality with these Moabite women. <clears throat> of course, in reality, there is no such thing as a god called Baal um, but the worship and the sacrifices were going somewhere um, Paul explains that this worship and the paganism of his day was not going to the, to the, to the idols or to the Greek gods that they were just fictions but the worship was going somewhere and he says that this worship was going to demons. 1 Corinthians 10.20 But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, 
they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. You see, so this is a big deal. That This worship of anything other than Yahweh ultimately is worship of, of, of demons, worship to, to the enemy. And God knew that the allure, the temptation would be great. Which is why his first command is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And as I say, we shouldn't interpret that as um, saying, God must be your most important God. You shall have no other gods before me. We see this tendency in Israel's history too, don't we? Viewing God as the chief God of creation, the Lord Most High, the God who outranks all other gods, but still worshipping other gods beneath him. Well, that's not what God was forbidding. This leads, this idea um, is still around today. This... This leads to what is known as religious syncretism. The incorporation of other beliefs into an existing religious tradition. And so we see this today in the church, these interfaith dialogues. Trying to learn. The Christian church trying to learn from Islam and so on. Multi-faith services in the airport in um, Naples. I saw multi-faith prayer room with a little arrow to the right. Do you see that is worshiping other gods before me, before the Lord? At a lower level, perhaps. The same sin is seeking common ground with liberal churches. Churches which don't believe the Bible. Or seeking common ground with Roman Catholics or Orthodox churches. Religious syncretism. They preach another gospel. They may use some of the same language as us, some of the same creeds even. But it's a different gospel, it's another gospel, which is not a gospel. And the first commandment means not only a prohibition against abandoning Yahweh for other gods, it's also a prohibition against worshipping other gods in addition to the true God. And there's a lot of that going on today. All roads lead to God, all roads lead to heaven. Multi-faith worship. What a, what a, what a, God so patient. You would think he, he could just send a fire down upon it, couldn't you? Be fully justified. No other gods before me. Doesn't mean no other gods. As long as I'm the most important God in your life, you can have other gods. It doesn't mean that. The word translated me in verse 3 is the Hebrew word pane. The phrase is al pane, literally at my face or to my face in the Hebrew. Often translated in other verses as in my presence. So before me can, be, can mean thou shalt have no other gods before my face. Or thou shalt have no other gods in my presence. Yahweh must be our God and we must have no other. In the Bible, God's covenants are often compared to the marriage contract. Um, And idolatry is often compared to adultery in a marriage. You know, we have time now, but read, read Hosea sometime for an example of this. Or read Ezekiel chapter 23, the Adultery of a hola and a holiba is another example of how in scripture idolatry is um, likened to adultery. 
You see, this first commandment tells us something immediately about the nature of God. He is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. And God here is entering into a heart covenant with his people and he doesn't expect to share them. He doesn't expect to share you and me, you or me either, with other things and other priorities. His love and affection for them demands total loyalty and the exclusion of all other rivals. And to commit adultery is like a woman committing adultery before the face of her, of her lawful husband. That's really what it's implying here. And so this commandment is just and it's natural. We, we feel the same in our marriages, don't we? I mean, no, 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 we're not all married, but those of us who are married or, or anticipate being married, we, we would feel exactly the same. It's a natural way of thinking and acting. And imagine those of us who are married, if we came home one evening and um, and we said, dear, can I introduce this special lady I've met? Um, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with her from now on and some of our money is going to be spent on her and um, and I'm afraid you're going to have to share the kitchen with her. Um, but don't be jealous because you're always going to be my number one. You know, what, what sort of reaction do you think our wives would have? I don't know. I know what reaction my wife would have. I would be here with perhaps some different colour eyes. And it, it would be right, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be just and natural? The, the reaction of jealousy is natural and right in that, in that context. And, and it would be just weird for any other reaction to be made. You see, we entered, into, we, we entered into a solemn covenant that this woman or this man shall be my exclusive husband or my exclusive wife. There's no sharing going to go on. It's not marriage, is it? It's mine. She's mine. He's mine. No one else's for life. And as Christians, we have said that this God shall be my God and none other. Well, I hope you've said that. And I hope that when you come to the Lord's table, you renew that covenant in your heart and you say, this God is my God and shall be my God. Binding us close to our God. The worship of any other God breaks this command. I suppose it's highly unlikely that any of, any of us here tonight to have ever worshipped Zeus or Minerva or Baal or any other pagan god but that's not necessary to break this commandment anything in our lives which takes priority over god becomes an idol and i know we all know that but it's, a, it's an important reminder not to have god's moral law as our guide and as our glory is idolatry not to view the world the world biblically and see things from God's point of view is idolatry. Not to have God first in our thoughts, our relationships, our work and our leisure is idolatry. To place our trust in other things or people is idolatry. I suppose it's very unlikely that any of us would say to a stock, thou art my father, and to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. But how many believe in some scientific theory which excludes God to be the creator? That's idolatry. I don't want to labour this because I know we all know it already, but we constantly have to watch ourselves. We never want to end up in the spiritual condition described 
in 2 Kings 17.33 where it says they feared the Lord they feared the Lord and served other gods that's so possible that's so possible to get into that spiritual condition God and God plus external worship for all to see but internally in secret an idolatrous heart you see God won't share like a husband or a wife won't share it's in the very nature of things because we're made in the image of a jealous God Exodus 24 verse 14 for thou shalt worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thomas Watson, the great English Puritan, wrote a book called The Ten Commandments. And in it, he gave a kind of diagnostic test for Christians. And uh, he wrote, he wrote... Um, well, he writes, what is it to have other gods besides the true God? In other words, how do you know if you're breaking this commandment? What is it to have other gods besides the true God? And he, get, he lists a number of things. And he says, well, <clears throat> first one he mentions is, is this, to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. Riches, deceitful riches, for example. How much security do we, do we think we have in, in riches which Paul calls deceitful? Or he mentions, Watson mentions, the arm of flesh. The Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, said Jeremiah, and maketh flesh his arm. We can do that in all sorts of ways, can't we? We're even like thinking, well, you know, if all things fail, I can just rely on the state. You know, the man, man's government will help me. It's idolatry. In our wisdom, you know, people particularly that have been given significant natural gifts this is a temptation to to rest in our in, in an intellect or in gifts let not the wise man glory in his wisdom said jeremiah or in in our civility and culture in our breeding in our education in our poise and politeness or civility and yet coming across as such a nice man a nice, nice woman in the heart there is still full of corruption and even religious duties and devotion Watson mentions he says trust not to your praying and hearing they are means of salvation, but they are not saviors. Do you get that? We're to pray and we're to listen to sermons, but they're not, they're, they're not your saviour. Saviour is the Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women have prayed day and night, gone without food, punished their own bodies, lived on top of windswept mountains. It's got them no closer to God. Then he mentions to love anything more than God is to make it a God. He begins by mentioning love of our estates. Um, our property, we would call it. Our stuff. Our assets. This gold with its glitter blinds the eyes, he says. And like... You know, some 
can be like Scrooge in, in the Christmas Carol. Um, Watson speaks of the man who, though he does not bow down to an idol, he worships the graven image in his coins. He's there counting greedily his amassed wealth. We may love pleasure more than God. Paul speaks of lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Could be our belly. We love our belly more than God. Philippians 3.19, whose God is their, be- their belly. It doesn't necessarily mean eating too much. It can be just a- an over-fascination with, with food and always wanting the most expensive and the most delicious. And, and God wants us to enjoy our food. But don't make, we don't make a God of it. Well, we shouldn't make a God of our belly. Some, you know, there's some people that, will, that they'll throw stuff out of. It's not of the highest quality. Or even Watson says the love of a child, a legitimate love. If, if, it, if we love a child or a wife or a friend or a car or a business or... or or, or anything more than God it's a, we've broken this commandment and Watson ends his comments on the first commandment with this sentence and I close here and it's a wonderful thing this he says none ever complained of serving God it was their comfort and their crown on their deathbed no one and I I really believe that there has never been a person on a deathbed who has said oh if only I had served God less there are many that have said I wish I had served God more but no one has ever said I wish I had served God less it's their comfort in death that they gave their lives to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, dear friends, tonight, let us love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. For Yahweh, Jehovah, says to us as his redeemed people, with a jealous love, thou shalt have no other gods before me. May the Lord bless his word to us tonight. Amen. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.